Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Man, that's just warms my heart to hear those stories of getting involved in serving our community. That's what's up. Well, I'm excited to get into the Word. I don't know about y'all. And um, we are continuing, as Pastor Josh said, through the book of Esther. And I'm just going to get right into it. We will look today at how God prepared Esther for a life-changing moment for herself and a life-saving moment for her people. And we're going to look at how her formation came through her trials. And here's the point. I'm just giving it to you up front. We're just going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this central point, that our formation comes through our tribulation. Our formation comes through our tribulation. That could be a bit of a controversial concept for some of us, but there's something significant about the reality that in this book, we're told that nothing is by coincidence, that we're not a cosmic accident, and even anything that's happened in our lives, God uses it as fodder. And I'm excited to go into that because God uses both the good and the bad And the ugly to make us more like Jesus. And I'm encouraged by the fact that not the evil of man nor our own foolishness can prevent God from working things out for his good and our good as well. God does not cause these horrible things to happen in life and even some of the darkest moments of your life. So don't, 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 don't get it twisted what I'm saying. But what this, this central truth does say and suggest is that brighter days are coming if you just hold on. So last week we saw in Esther chapter 1 that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And in particular, at the time of uh, that we find Esther, this is the 5th century BC. This is uh, the kingdom of Persia, which was the dominant kingdom when es- es- Esther lived. And at this point, at J- Esther and Jews like her were either had just been released to go back to Jerusalem as a subjugated people with a broken down city and a destroyed temple from when Babylon had come and destroyed and sent them into exile, or some of them, because it was about a thousand mile journey, stayed in Persia. And this exile is this incredibly deeply disappointing, discombobulating, just confusing moment for the children of Israel because they had walked into the promised land. They had built this temple. They, they were like team God, and so they expected that God would be with them regardless of what they did. So they 
worshiped other gods and they participated in injustice, didn't do the things like we're talking about serving our city. And as a result of that, God put them on punishment. Some of y'all remember punishment. You remember like you were supposed to do certain chores before, you know, mom or dad got home and instead you decided to play a video game or watch TV and talk on the phone or something happened and then they come in and the thing isn't done. And then it was like, all right. Now, in addition to some leather that some folks may have experienced, we won't get into that. There was maybe just some time out, some, some just you got to just go and not do the things that you want to do because you didn't do the things I asked you to do. Well, Israel gets put in a 70-year time out. And it was shocking, but it also asked, caused them to ask this question as they are living and experiencing life now, no longer in the shadow of the temple that they could point to their kids and say, you see that? That's where we worship the God of the universe, the God that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now they walk by and the kid is like pointing to a temple to a false god named Marduk. And they're like, what's that for, dad? And they're having to try to explain reality in this fallen state. And so now... There is no prophets that they had. God seems to be silent, and that now they are struggling with the question of where God at? Does he, has he forgotten us? Does God still care? And they're faced with a challenge. See, it's easy to be about the rhythms of worship when everybody's doing it. But now what do you do when people looking around you like, you funny? For talking about the God of heaven and earth. People looking at you like, what you talking about? Why do you talk funny? Why do you pray? Why do you, why do you read this old book? And are you going to, and, and there's a couple different strategies or responses that people have to that. And we can see it in our culture today. There are some who decide to wage a culture war and decide to just almost believe like, you know what we can do? We can bring the old kingdom back and we're just going to fight for it and we're going to force people to believe like we believe and do what we do. And that's not faithful to what God is doing in the moment. But then there's another reaction of assimilating into the culture. I'm just going to blend in and just kind of chill and just pretend like I'm not like different and I don't believe different. But God calls us to something that's not either of those extremes, neither culture war nor assimilation, but faithful presence in the midst of being countercultural. And what does that look like? See, that's tough. And it's especially tough when you're part of a marginalized or exploited group like Esther was, not just because she was a Jew, but also as a woman in the kingdom of men. We looked at in chapter one how King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, depending on your translation, he went by both names, that he had a party that he showed out for six months. And he planned to cap off this party by flaunting his wife's body and beauty for his male guests to enjoy. And the queen, Queen Vashti, refuses to be his trophy wife says, no, I'm not going to come and do that and be a part of this drunken, you know, fleshly display and be ogled and catcalled. And so she refuses. And so they banish the queen as a result. Now, all of this is just this backdrop. And, and here's how the interesting thing that God is, we, we see through the text, that even in the foolishness of men, the wise plans of God are accomplished. Because in that situation, in that craziness that just happened, 
it created a vacancy. It created an opportunity for someone to step in and to actually represent God in the midst of it. Do you know that Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, but it's the one where we can see God most clearly working in it. And that's a word for us in our lives. Because in the course of your day, there are people who, you, you may go, especially in a place like New York, a whole day without anyone mentioning God, but that doesn't mean that God is not intimately involved with your life. But we have to learn how to listen when he's being silent. So we're going to look at three different aspects of what contributed to Esther's formation, her spiritual formation, her formation as a person, as a leader, and ultimately queen. We're going to look at the king's decision to replace Vashti through verses one through four. Then we're going to look at an introduction into Mordecai and Esther in verses five through 11. And then finally, the consequences and the, the, the things that led up to Esther becoming queen. All right, so... In verses 1 through 3, I'll just read it for our context. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susha, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women, excuse me, and let the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. So here's the plan. Now it says, and after these things. Now these things, we have to kind of look, what we saw in chapter one, we just gave the update of the whole situation at the party and, and, and Vashti not continuing on. But we know from verse 16 in chapter two that these things, there's a, a, a four-year gap that happens from chapter one where we see this is the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And now we're in the seventh year. It says that in verse 16. So why, what's the reason for the gap? Well, we know through archaeology and through history that it was because he was in war in Greece. In fact, some of us have seen the movie about the war, the 300. Some of y'all remember, like there was Xerxes and he came and they, he got, you know, the dudes, Leonidas and all them. And, and so he goes and if you, know, if you saw the movie, you realize he lost the battle. So he comes back having lost his queen and losing the battle. So he mad. He big mad. He, <laughs> he is. And once again, look at the character of this man. It says he remembered Vashti and what she had done. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Not what you did, but what she did. And then it says, and what had been decreed against her in the past since kind of reveals the fact that he kind of is kind of throwing some shade at his advisors. And one of the things that we'll notice is that it says the young attendants. Now, in chapter one, they dropped all the names, Mecumen and all those other names that was hard to pronounce were right there. And they're not there anymore. In fact, it caused these folks young, young servants. And, and, and so there's some commentators that say that he probably beheaded all his other ones because they lost the war in Greece. And now he just recruited some new dudes 
some new yes men to tell him some things. So what we see here is a portrait of a leader who is easily persuaded, is angry and not in control of his emotions, and yet is somehow in control. And God is telling us, look, this man, that, that he appears to be in control. He's actually not in control, even of himself. But nevertheless, so these, they, they decide to come up with this beauty contest, the first Miss Universe pageant. And the interesting thing is what is described. It says beautiful young virgins. So the key criteria for these men, once again, is objectification. Something good to look at, some eye candy for the king. The other thing we see here is that the manipulation involved, young. There's a reason for the young. And one of the things, can I, I'm just going to talk, you know, I'm just going to talk for a second. Because, you know, it's interesting, when I remember being in high school and Many of my classmates, like the ladies, so let's say I'm junior in high school, they tended to want to be with guys who were out of high school, like 19, 20, 21, that kind of thing. And I understand women mature fast and all that. But what they didn't realize is that while they were thinking they were grown, the very men who were more likely to actually give them attention were those who were trying to manipulate them because they had a few more years on them of life. Be careful when you think that you're trying to be in a situation and you got it under control, but when someone is actually being a predator and they're actually leaning into that. That's just a little situation that the fellas, y'all know what I'm talking about. There's a reason why you see the super seniors in college always going after fresh meat. That was for free. We're moving on. <laughs> the other thing is it says uh, that they must be virgins. Now, the irony, I don't know if you see the irony of this situation, because this king and his court is anything but chaste. They're out here trying to have the queen, you know, shake it fast, watch herself in front of them, but yet they want virgins. Isn't it interesting that purity culture only tends to be focused on the women and not what the men are doing? I'm just, I'm just staying in the text. And then the last observation here, the last observation that I think is, and this is, this is a bit complicated, because even though it says that, like, clearly this edict and what they're announcing is not like a, and this is where it's different from a pageant in which women sign up for. Like, they're not, like, taking volunteers. They're like, yo, round up all the hotties, and, and we're going to come get them, and then we're going to have them, you know, be in this thing. Now, the thing is, though, I'd imagine that some of, at least some of the women were excited about this opportunity. Wait, you mean I could get to go to the palace and get these treatments we're going to look at and maybe even be the next queen? And that's the tricky thing as well, is that oftentimes the system will insist on the oppressed to be participants in their own oppression. In fact, they will tell you it's being liberated to go and flaunt yourself all over the place. Oh, yes, this is, this is sexual liberation for you to just spread yourself around. That's what it, it's not like. Okay, we're going to move on. Y'all. So, so the king, they, they, they issue this thing, and, and, and what we find out is, according to history, that they, he had up to 360 concubines. 
So he would use these women and then toss them away when they didn't satisfy his appetite any longer. And imagine being in this situation and, and, you know, and, and wondering if you get caught up in the undertow of this, is there, like, where is God in the midst of this? It just feels like a dark place in which someone is just satisfying their appetites. But the reality, again, is that God can use even the exploitation and even the forgetfulness of men to accomplish his work. Can I testify for a second on that? Because I have personal experience of just the forgetfulness part. I'm a, anybody that knows me knows I, I forget stuff. I, I lose stuff. But I was, um, my junior year in college, I uh, had a friend who was in a campus ministry, and she told me about this conference for black Christian college students. It was going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, December 27th through 31st. And I was like, and she was like, yeah, I think you might like it. I was like, yo, that sounds amazing. So I took it, but I, had st- I was planning on studying abroad that year. I went to Cameroon. So by the time I got there, I had forgotten to register beforehand, and I didn't have any way of paying for it or letting them know or anything. And so I just kind of sat on the card. Well, about a month before I leave, I get an email from a campus minister saying, hey, I'm organizing a bus to take students to this conference for black Christian college students in Atlanta. I'm like, yo, that's what's up. I, now I don't even have to worry about getting there. So I'm like, yeah, sign me up. So I go and, you know, sign up and I'm on this bus and uh, head down there. And it changed my life. I mean, I'll, I'll go to this conference. I'm seeing young college students bold in their faith, worshiping. Like, we go out, we're sharing our faith. You know, folks, I share, you know, my faith with this dude who told us he was a drug dealer. And I was like, okay, this is intense. And then he prayed to receive Christ, crying on the, on the corner. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I get back, and I'm cleaning my room, and I pull out the flyer. And I realize I was at the wrong conference. <laughs> There were two conferences that were the same exact time, December 27th through 31st, in Atlanta, Georgia, targeting black Christian college students, and I was at the Impact Conference and not the one at InterVarsity. And, and I end up applying there, end up serving in ministry there, meeting Pastor James there, serving. God had a plan even through my forgetfulness. That's what I'm saying. God uses stuff. He uses everything. So here's the point. God even uses foolishness of man to get us in formation with his plan. Even the foolishness is used to get us in formation. So let's go on to the next section here. In verse 5, we read, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So in these few verses, we we get to see it paint a picture and we we don't want to rush over this because what we're seeing as part of Esther's formation is a great deal of tragedy. Her cousin raises her like a father. 
We see from this that Mordecai, it says, is, is a Jew, and we need to understand that that is both an ethnic and a religious distinction, right? They're from a thousand miles away. You probably look different than the Persians, as they still do today. But also, they have a different faith system and a different belief, and there's something distinct still about Mordecai, who's now his grandparents had been part of the Babylonian captivity, and now he is. This is third generation here, and he's still faithful. But he also knows how to move about in the court, because if you reckon, if you remember, if you go back to the book of Daniel, we preached on this a couple years ago, that Nebuchadnezzar only took the best and the brightest. He took the nobles from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that means that Mordecai is literate. He knows how to, to walk around the halls of power. And, and, and also we need to understand, though, there's this, in this tension of Mordecai, even the name is significant. You see, Marduk was the god that was worshipped in Babylon, so Mordecai is worshipper of Marduk. So they gave him this name. This was not his Jewish name. We don't know what it might have been. And, 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 they, and don't, don't get it twisted that oftentimes powers and kingdoms will use names to try to be a battleground of what they want you to think about yourself. So when you hear today, people say, oh, you're superstitious and you're religious and, oh, you're, you know, narrow-minded. Those are names that are trying to be projected on someone who wants to be distinctive against another kingdom. And we have to decide which names are we going to embrace. But, but, but check out the fact that Esther's actual name, we've been calling her name, that wasn't her government name. That wasn't what her mama named her. Hadassah. Hadassah in the Hebrew is, is myrtle. Uh, myrtle is a, uh, a, a certain type of plant that was native in Israel that um, had evergreen leaves meant that continued to, you know, throughout the year, but also had a white star-shaped flower. They were beautiful, but they were also aromatic. They were used for perfume, and it was considered a sign of peace and God's blessing. That was what she was named. But she was then renamed Star, which only focused on her external beauty from Persia. That's what they wanted her to think of herself. And we know that her parents died when she was young because Mordecai raised her up. So here she is, a Jewish woman and an orphan in a world in which it's very fragile for her very existence. We see this through Queen Vashti, what can happen even for the most powerful woman in the kingdom. What about for someone as powerless? And she may have asked, why, God? Like, why would you put me in this situation? But here's the interesting thread that we just can even see, that because Mordecai raised her, and because Mordecai was familiar with the laws and the rules of the courts, he was able to prepare her to navigate through those things when she would need to, even before she needed to understood that she needed to, to happen. So here we have Mordecai. See the contrast, who even though Esther is beautiful and, and all this, that's not his concern for her. He's raising her because of a concern that he has as a family member, like a sister. But then you have Xerxes, right, King Azuerus, who is actually rounding Esther up uh, to be part of this harem. And so we have to make a decision. I'm going to speak to the men for a second. Are we going to be like Mordecai or be like Xerxes? 
Which kingdom are you going to represent in the way that you engage? Because the kingdom of God is supposed to be, in the context of the church, is supposed to be a place where we care for and shepherd and, and, and look to uh, see women as sisters. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Paul was like, let me, let me just make it very clear, brothers, what I mean. In all purity. Is the church a place where the women feel safe around the men? Or does it feel like a reflection of the kingdom of man? That's something we have to push into and lean into. So in verse 8, we go on and it says, so I don't see we set up the, the idea of who they were. It says, so when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the, cap, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and with her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we see in this escalation, she gets caught up in the undertow of this edict and is taken like the other young girls. But we also see this aspect of her gaining favor with Haggai who is an official, but is also one who has suffered from this tyrannical regime. Because, you know, eunuchs, what it meant is that these were men who were castrated so that they would not uh, be at a threat to impregnating the, queen, the king's harem. And so this was a forceful thing done. He was probably taken as a slave from another country or something as well. And now he's put in this position. And that's one of the things that we have to understand about the toxicity of kingdoms of men is that it's not just the women that suffer. Anyone who's not in a position of power is suffering. But in any case, Haggai sees something in Esther and, and it says that she, he, she wins his favor and he starts to look out for her and starts to prepare her in a unique way to give her what she needs and give her the support that she needs, even giving her attendance to kind of wait, watch on her. But did you also notice something else? It said in verse 10 that Mordecai had told Esther not to reveal that she was Jewish. Y'all, Esther was passing. Somehow that was passing. What's that mean? <laughs> passing is a phenomenon that oftentimes where it's a strategy where those in a minority culture are, in, you know, are able to present themselves. Not everybody can pass. I can't, I can't pass. That ain't my testimony. But some of y'all, like Bright, can do that. And, and, it, it can, and, and in the context of America, this has actually been like a phenomenon where thousands of people who would have been otherwise been identified as black pretended to be white in order to not have to deal with the difficulties of what it meant to be black. And instead, there's a movie coming out about this from the book I remember reading in college. So 
Here's the challenge about the, 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 and, and, and the precarious nature of passing, especially in this context. One, it comes at a cost of isolation. She has to pretend like she don't know who Mordecai is at the court. The person who raised her like, like a father. Because everybody knows he's a Jew. Because he's, you know, and so she, has to, so she has to be disconnected from her people. But then also she's completely at risk because if she's discovered, we saw what the, what the king did when Vashti just didn't want to dance. If she, he finds out, wait a minute, you're from one of the people groups that I'm like actually subjecting? What, you trying to poison my food? What, you trying to come at me? Like there's a, he could be looked at, she could be looked at as a, a huge threat, which we will see. So this is what we need to understand throughout the context of the book is that her life is in constant peril and in constant risk. And yet in the midst of that, God is used, has used Mordecai to, to, to be this father figure in the context where she didn't grow up with her dad or a mother. God has used Haggai to guide her through this dangerous situation and give her the key. But the key is that she receives it and she listens to it. This is, and here's another key point. Receiving godly information is necessary to get information with God's plan and God's purposes for us. I mean, we, we, receiving God, and that, that can't just come from within. That is not just something that's done in isolation, that we need to be around people who, who can be like a Paul to us as a young Timothy, who, who, we can, who we can speak to, who can shape us, who can give us insight and information. We need to be around others who we can trust and say, hey, I'm struggling with, how do I handle and navigate in these spaces? Because it's complicated. Yes. Trying to figure this out is complicated. In the world, we live in a complex world. What does it mean for me to live out my faith at work? What does it mean for me to do that at school? What does it mean for me to do that in a family where I might be the only one who believes like me? And, and, and if I don't go in the route of receiving information from other sources, then I'm only relying on myself and I can make missteps. And notice the contrast between Esther and the king, because the king keeps getting bad information. His information so far that he's been getting so far in chapter one has caused him to reject his queen, who we can see her character was enough where she wasn't trying to be exploited. Now it's caused him to be involved with human trafficking with these women. And then we're going to find out a little bit later, he's going to actually inadvertently uh, co-sign on genocide. Bad advice, bad counsel. What kind of advice are you getting? Be careful where you get relationship advice from. Like, just kind of do a little bit on their resume. Like, how their situation has been looking. <laughs> Might give you a clarity. But this aspect of passing is, is, is tricky because even when in Esther's own development, there's this aspect of, like, she has to wear a mask. And it's interesting that we're talking about this on Halloween, a day where a lot of people wear masks. But how do many of you know that Halloween ain't just on October 31st? There's a whole lot of us who wear masks 365 days a year. Does nobody know where you, who you believe in and where you worship? What you do this weekend? Oh, you know, none. Just chilling. Some of us want to pass because we don't want to be associated with all that might come with being in branded in a certain way. What's my witness look like? Am I wearing a mask? Am I passing? Now, Esther will eventually reveal herself during a time of persecution. And it's a type of persecution that's still happening today 
don't know if, how many of you heard of Leah Sharibu. Several years ago, there was a, a tragic situation. Boko Haram in Nigeria came and kidnapped a group of 276 girls while they were in school. Leah was only 14 years old. As a result of international pressure, the government went and rescued, and they were able to get, gather 275 of them. But Boko Haram decided to hold on to Leah because she wouldn't renounce her faith. And so she's been now a captive for four years, and we're still praying and believing God for a miracle to take her back. But this is still what happens all over the world. We can kind of get lulled into a sense of complacency because it doesn't really cost as much physically to our bodies right now in order to represent Christ. But I'm telling you that we need to have a resolve of what is it that we're doing and why am I doing this? And what is it that I believe about God and how he can still be with me in the context of experiencing hardship? Verse 12. So now when the turn came for each woman, young woman, to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments from women. Hold on, I just got to pause here for a second. Now, I know that some people take a long time to get ready. <laughs> but just to let you know how serious they were about this thing, so I had to do some digging. I'm like, well, six months, what are, you, what are you doing for this? And then it was split up. And so they would actually, they, they, I mean, at the time, Persia was the capital in the world for uh, cosmetics, for perfumes, oils, all that type of thing. And one of the things that the women would do is they would have cosmetic burners that would heat oil, right? And they would heat the oil. And then they would crouch on, like, on top of the oil with like a robe and allow the oil to come and absorb this, this, this into their skin. And they kept doing this. And then on top of that, there would be spa treatments. So their skin was soft as a baby. People were like, <laughs> like, yes, that sounds amazing right now. And so by the time a year comes by, you can't discern. Can you imagine the per not having to spray perfume? The perfume is coming out of you? That's what they was on there. So it was, it was amazing. I mean, some of y'all have a hair day. Imagine a hair month. Like that's, okay, we're going to move on. Um, not getting to the point. All right, so verse 13. When the, young woman, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem in the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So what we get here is the full sense of how this pageant works is that, you know, after being used for his pleasure, their life would never be the same again. They entered a virgin and they left a concubine. And the thing that's interesting is, as we talked about the luxurious nature of the preparation process, and it does sound pretty interesting, but when you know what the, the outcome is, now all of a sudden you just have a beautifully perfumed prison. And oftentimes today, that's still the trap that Satan uses to get people into this 
dilemma in this situation where now all of a sudden that which I was thinking was, was beautiful and extravagant and just luxurious is now something. I was just reading an uh, a essay by Emily uh, Ratakowski, who was one of the models in uh, Blurred Lines, that video from Robin Thicke a, a while ago. And she was talking about how objectifying it was being on set, how there was this aspects of assault that happened. And she's not the only one. There's been several models from that video shoot. And the thing is, it's, it's wild because when you listen to the lyrics of the song, it's actually very problematic. But at the time, it's like, this is an opportunity for me to make my big break. So we have to be careful about when we look at what we are embracing as, as freedom, because it can actually be, like we talked about last time, shiny designer bondages. Verse 15, when the, time, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Azuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So the thing that's interesting that happens is because Haggai is, the, is, is, is a king's official, he knows which actual uh, behaviors and, and things will endear her to the king. And, 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 and it's still this uncomfortable idea in this text that like this thing is happening where she's still being trafficked. She's still in this scenario where she doesn't have much control. And, and, and what is that? And, and it, what's her motive here? Like, it's, it, I mean, what was Mordecai's motive in keeping her identity secret? Was it just to protect her or was there something else involved? And this is what I actually like about this text is the text is ambiguous because life is ambiguous. Yeah. The point is, Regardless of sometimes what our motives might have been and how mixed that they may have been or how complicated things is, God's plan is still unmovable. I was, uh, I know some of y'all went in the praise team to go see the Maverick City uh, Lecrae concert uh, this weekend. Yes, make some noise. And I got a chance to talk to Lecrae for a, a podcast I was doing. This is not a flex, but it is coming out on Tuesday. Um, where you're from. But seriously, but the crazy thing was Lecrae, I asked him about his faith story, and he talked about how he decided he was kind of hanging out in this campus ministry environment in Texas, and a group of people decided to, you know, they were going to go to this conference, and he's like, yo, y'all going to Atlanta, and there's women there? I'm going there. And he ended up getting saved at the same conference that I went to by accident. God is doing stuff behind the scenes oftentimes and even working behind your bad motives. And here's the thing, if God can work through our bad motives, then what can, are the bad motives of other people to him? He can work through those as well. God still provided for her Mordecai and Haggai, the attendants. They knew how she could survive and how to do that. And God gives godly counsel for us in complex situations. But there's still a very significant difference in what we saw there. It says that she won the king's grace and favor. And this is a huge difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God because God's favor on us is not dependent on our beauty, thank God. 
I mean, what kind of grace depends on appearance? The human, the fallen kind. But God saw her as Hadassah before she ever became Esther. A fragrant flower from birth. And his grace and favor had nothing to do with her appearance. Some of us still try to clean ourselves up. You smell like smoke from what you did last night. You smell like last night. And so we try to go through this process of beautification over the span of a year or two. You know, I'm going to get myself right, and then I'm going to get serious with God. But first, I got to kind of just clean myself up. But God says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no cleaning yourself up. It's God cleaning you you up. You see, man demands that you give him favors. God graciously gives us favor. That's the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. So we need to stop being in this process where we're trying to clean ourselves up to be acceptable to a God who already accepted us. Have you received that yet? Have you embraced it yet? Because God's unmerited favor is much different than Xerxes, which you have to earn. See, and this is how you understand it. If you're like, just a pop quiz. You understand God's grace, and you, you know you got it when you go to God because you messed up. When you run to God because I've messed up, because I've fallen. Not because I think I'm good enough to earn and be in his presence, but because I blew it. And the funny thing is we think like if I just stick, stay like away from God until he cools down a little bit, that somehow he forgot what I did. It's like God doesn't forget. He remembers you and all of what that means. But this is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is so important. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Look at this. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's the gift of God. And we see in Esther's humility, she was not boastful or arrogant. She was able to take wisdom and counsel. And as a result of that, she wins. And her win is is completely in God's providence because God is the one who turns the heart of kings toward wherever they should go. And this is a clear callback and a reminder to the Joseph story. Y'all know about the Joseph story, right? I'm going to give you real quick. So Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers who was going to kill him. This was like the second option. Let's just sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery and then he, 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 he gets favor from the person, his slave master, but then the, 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 he gets accused of a crime he doesn't, get, he doesn't do. So then he gets sent into prison. And after all of that happens to him, he's now before his brothers, the same brothers who had sold him into slavery years ago, and it completely altered the whole trajectory of his life. And they're afraid that he's going to get vengeance on them. And look at what Joseph says. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is saying here, like, look, I know what you meant to do. You meant to hurt me. But God was setting me up, even in the midst of that problem, in order to build me up. This is what... So no matter what, this is why we can't hold on to grudges and can't hold, because it's like we can't get so, you can't hold on to something and still get, reach out to what God is trying to do in your life. You got to just move on, shake that off and get to the place where you can accept what God has for you. And I know that that takes work and I'm not trying to trivialize that, especially when there's painful circumstances, but God is still moving in the midst of those painful circumstances. He uses our tribulation for our formation. God uses the plans, 
the foolishness of kings for his grand plans. He uses God's, uh, God uses Esther's hardships for her formation, and, he, and Esther gets godly information in order to get in formation with what God was doing in and through her life. God is able to use our brokenness for our formation, to get them in formation, to get us information with his plan. And that was true in 500 BC, 486 BC, and it's still true 2021 AD. Just want you to take a moment because there's usually a spot, a tender spot where it's like, yeah, but not that though. Yeah, but not him though, or not her. And I just wanted you to take a moment, just think about what that struggle might be right now. And just offer it up to God as a reminder of the fact that yes, even that, that doesn't define you. Yeah, they may have renamed you, but that you st God still remembers your name, Hadassah, before Esther. And now just think of the provision. You're still here. The people that God put in your path in order to get you to a place to get overcome whatever it is that there was the struggle. Like Joseph, what was meant for evil can be used for the good, not only for the saving of your life, but what is it that God wants to do in other people's lives? The amazing thing about hearing Brett share today is, I remember when he came in here, he did not come in here to come to church to worship God when he came in. He had other plans, but now to see God faithfully use him to care for other people, what was meant for evil, God is using for good. And that's the same story he wants to tell, he is telling in each and every one of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that no weapon formed against us can prosper. We thank you that you even use the folly, the evil, the pain, use everything for our good and your glory. Lord, help us to embrace that today. Help us to sense your call on our lives so that if you have put us in places and spaces where we have to navigate complexity, that we would listen to counsel, that we would do so wisely, and that we would do so ultimately with the understanding that you haven't forgotten us, that you have remembered, and that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. In Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.